If you would, please turn with me to uh, John chapter 7. John chapter 7. We are making our way uh, slowly but surely through the Gospel of John and just want to remind you that John's purpose in writing this gospel, this, this account of Jesus, is, uh, is the same purpose we have in studying. Uh, this is a sermon series. John tells us in chapter 20 that he wrote these things so that we would believe, that you and I would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so John's purpose and Hopefully, our purpose is that as we make our way through John, that John is lifted up. I mean, that Jesus is lifted up, right? That, that Jesus is presented as who he really is. And that when we see him, uh, that we would see him as he really is. And as we see him that way, that we would believe in him, that we would trust in him and have eternal life. And so really, the application point of every sermon in, the, in John's gospel is believe, trust in Jesus and have eternal life. And if you have been with us, uh, we finished John chapter 6 last week, uh, you're beginning to realize that there is a belief problem, that it seems like the exact opposite. As Jesus is moving forward, that the exact opposite is happening. Um, John chapter 6 begins very promise, in a very promising way with lots of people following Jesus. They eat his bread. But then as they listen to his words, they start leaving. Uh, they find Jesus hard to take. That the, more, that the more forthright Jesus is about what it's going to cost him uh, and what it's going to cost his disciples, the more he talks about his death, um, well, that is the point of departure for many of his disciples um, or so-called disciples. And what's left at the end of chapter 6 is this group of 12 men. Uh, and Peter's confession is a beautiful confession because Jesus says, where do you... What, do you want to go away as well? Jesus asked Peter and the other disciples. And Peter says, Lord, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so that's the, that is the true disciples' confession. But even still, Jesus says, even among this little group of 12 people, one of you is the devil. Uh, one of, the devil is at work even in Jesus' inner circle. Um, and so that's how we begin chapter 7. Uh, what looks like the opposite of success, but actually failure. So uh, let's give attention to the reading of God's Word, John chapter 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Uh, Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here. And go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Because not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you. But it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. 
I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After, this, after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much murdering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man, others said, No, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will... He will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Hasn't Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with righteous judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Isn't this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Let's pray. Father, would you be gracious to us as we aim to understand your word? Would you be gracious to me as I aim to preach it rightly? We pray, Lord, that indeed we would hear what is true, that we would know who is true even that you are true, and that our hearts would be drawn to believe in you and desire to do your will. So, Lord, please bless the reading, the hearing, and now the preaching of your holy word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. A contrarian A person who opposes or rejects popular opinion. That's a contrarian. And and what we're 
seeing and what we're going to see develop over the next couple of chapters is that Jesus is quite the contrarian. You see, uh, this is about six months after what we saw last week in John 6. Um, and And as the crowds begin to leave Jesus... Jesus stays in, stays in Galilee. He stays kind of around his hometown, uh, and he does a lot of ministry there. And a lot of that ministry is covered in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but it's not covered in John. John goes ahead and moves Jesus back to Jerusalem because one of the things that John wants to show... I mean, we've covered six, uh, two years of Jesus' life in six chapters. Now, from this point to the end of the gospel... That's going to cover about six months. So um, John spends a lot of time talking about Jesus on his way to the cross. And what we're going to increasingly see is that, G- is that the battle lines are clearly drawn. There's going to be this division. Already there was some doubt, especially among the Jewish authorities. That's who, uh, when John talks about the Jews, those are the Jewish authorities. Uh, Jesus has already made them mad. Um, and we see that here at the beginning of chapter 7, they want to kill him. And if you'll remember, if you go back to chapter 5 and verse 18, the reason they want to kill him is because he healed a man on the Sabbath and then claimed to be God. Uh, and that makes them angry. And so they want to kill Jesus. And so that, the, the battle lines are clearly drawn, and what will happen from here forward is the division will deepen. Not only Jesus and the Jewish leaders, but now the crowds, all the multitudes. They begin as kind of confused about who Jesus is, but increasingly they're going to become hostile until at the very end of the gospel they are the very people uh, approving of Jesus' death. And so we see that Jesus really is quite the contrarian. He is not... The reason that, the reason that they hate him is because he does not play to their expectations. And so as strange as some of the things in John 7, and as we move forward in John 7 and 8, as as strange as they seem, what's happening is that Jesus is proving his divine identity. He is proving his origin by defying human expectations. It's as if Jesus will say again and again, I'm not who you expect me to be, and I'm not who you want me to be. I'm something better. But as he does that, he's challenging our expectations of him. And his very challenge of that is what will take him to the cross, which is where he has to go. Uh, So let's kind of walk through the narrative and see if we can make some sense of it. After this whole episode in Capernaum, the feeding of the 5,000, the leaving of the crowds, Jesus remains in Galilee for about another six months. He doesn't want to go back to Judea because that's where the authorities want to kill him. But now the Feast of Booths is at hand, right? Uh, That sounds like a really strange festival to have, but this is one of and probably the most popular of the three Jewish festivals, all right? So there were three three pilgrimage festivals. There were three holidays that the Jews were supposed to uh, make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem at. You had Passover, you had Pentecost, and then you had the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles. And this is a feast that happens in the fall. And one of the things that happened at this feast is they celebrated the harvest, right? The fall harvest was celebrated. But just like every Jewish holiday, it was meant to remember something. And the reason this one is called the Feast of Booths, or 
for lack of a better word, the Feast of Tents, is because these Jewish people, they were remembering how God took care of them during their wilderness wanderings. Right? So this is a feast meant to remember that while they were dwelling in tents, while they were living in tents, God lived with them in a tent. And while they were going through the wilderness, God provided bread for them and water for them. And so this is a festival that is meant to celebrate and remember God's gracious provision. So that's what's going on. It was a big festival. Everybody was, uh, if you, everybody was required to go if you could make it from north, south, east, and west. Everybody went up to Jerusalem and camped out there for a whole week. There were sacrifices that had to be made every day. And even the pilgrimage, even the trip up, was part of the experience. Think, uh, it's, like, it's like tailgating before a football game, right? You would gather together in these big family groups, and as you made your way up to Jerusalem, they would sing psalms. They would pray together, and they would sing uh, probably the psalms of ascent that come in the latter part of the book of Psalms. They would, as they got closer to Jerusalem, they would sing them in order. And so all of this was part of a very public Worship ritual. And so it's understandable that Jesus' brothers say, Hey, Feast of Booze is here. It's time to go. Right? You need, you need to go with us because they've seen what's been happening. They've seen the crowds leave. They know what Jesus can do. They've seen the miracles. But they see that Jesus is beginning to lose popularity. Um, so their thought is, well, Jesus... You know, we need to get the name back out there, right? Look at, uh, look at what they say. His brother said to him, this is verse 3, Leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the works you're doing. Now, oddly enough, his disciples had already seen a lot of his works. But the, the brothers seem to be saying, You need to go to Jerusalem where everybody's going to be. You need to show yourself to the world. You need to make a big show, Right? Look, and on the road, we can tweet about it. We can take selfies. We can, you know, some crafty one-liners. We've got to get the brand out there. We've got to get the name out there. We need to put some signs in the yard, right? We need to get Jesus more popular. We need to reclaim what you've lost. That's what's going through their minds, probably because it would have benefited them. There doesn't seem to be ill will on their part. They just see that Jesus' following is falling off. And he needs to go and make a show of it, do some, something miraculous, something special, so that, uh, so that he can get all his disciples back. But we see their motives there in verse 5. Not even his brothers believed in him. Right? Their motive for Jesus getting Jesus in the spotlight comes from a heart of unbelief. And so what we see in this first episode is that Jesus is proved... Jesus proves his origin by keeping to his father's agenda. He doesn't, he doesn't want to follow their agenda. Look at how he responds to them. Their plea comes from unbelief, and so Jesus says to them, Look, my time has not yet come. Right? And what he's saying is, John uses, John uses two words. Most of the time, he talks about Jesus' hour. And when John talks about Jesus' hour, he's referring to the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, the hour of Jesus' glorification. But John uses a different word here. Here he says time. And so what he's saying is, it's not time for me to go up yet. It's not my time. 
But your time is always here. You can go up any time you like. The world cannot hate you. You belong to the world. Your agenda is set by the world. It's not set by me. It's not set by the Father. And so you can go up any time you like. Your schedule is your own, in a sense. And your schedule is your own because the world doesn't hate you. But the world does hate me. And the reason the world hates me is because I bear witness to, I testify about its evil works. Right? Just, just like what happens, imagine uh, walking into a rodent-filled room, a house that's infested with rats. And they've been living in there a while. And so they've made a foul, foul mess in the living room. And as soon as you cut on the lights, what happens? They scatter. Because as long as they're in darkness, their deeds are fine. But when the lights come on and their deeds are exposed, they run for the hills. And so John has already told us in John 1 that Jesus is this light coming into the world. He comes revealing God. And as he does that, he is exposing the sinful darkness of the world. And the world, rather than saying, Thank you. I was wondering why I was so messed up. Now that you're here, I feel so much better. The world doesn't say that to Jesus. The world is challenged by Jesus. And so instead of loving Jesus for exposing its dark works, they hate him. And so Jesus says, I don't go by your timetable. I don't run on your agenda. I run on the Father's agenda. I keep his agenda. So you go on up. You guys head up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast. My time has not yet come. It's not time for me to go. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Is Jesus lying? Does Jesus, does Jesus lie to his brothers when he says, I'm not going up to this feast? Because clearly right here, he's going up. And the answer is in the meaning of that word, time, right? He says, my time, that phrase in verse 8, my time has not yet fully come. It's not time for me to go yet. I must go carefully. I can't go. Your agenda is for me to go right now in a very public way and make this huge public display of power so that people will like me. But that's not the plan. That's not the agenda. So I'm not going to go with you. I'm not going at this time. I must go on my own time. When my time has come, then I will go. Jesus has no interest in showing off for the crowds. And so he does go, but he goes at the right time, and he goes in the right way. So Jesus doesn't lie to his brothers. He's not being deceptive. He's simply saying, I have to go in the right time, and I have to go in the right way. And so I can't go with you. And what he finds when he gets there... It's hostility and division, right? The Jews are looking for him. They're saying, where is he? The crowds are divided on him. Some, you've got some who are saying, hey, he's, this is a, he's a good guy. Jesus is a good man. Now, they're wrong. Jesus is not a, simply a good man. So even the people who are for Jesus don't even really understand who Jesus is. But they see what he's doing. They like it, and so they say, he's a good man. And then you have other people who are saying, no, 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 no. He's leading the people astray. This is going to go badly for us. We've seen other rebellious leaders like him. We've seen other messiahs. And every time we get punished. So 
uh, no, 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 Jesus is a deceiver. And yet everybody's kind of keeping it in quiet, right? They're, they're whispering about him in the corners because the Jew, they know what the Jewish leaders want to do, right? They're afraid of the authorities, and so they don't speak openly about him. And it's in the middle of all this, it's in the middle of this feast as the sacrifices are going on that Jesus walks right into the temple, walks right into the center of Jewish law, life, uh, right where all of these sacrifices are happening, and he does a huge miracle to display his power. No. Jesus doesn't go into the temple and do a miracle. What does he do? He teaches. In the, midst of, in the face of hostility and confusion, it's not the sign that Jesus gives, but a sermon. He starts explaining. He, sp- he starts teaching. And so Jesus is proved by keeping to the Father's agenda, and Jesus is proved by keeping of his Father's law. Let's see how they respond to his teaching. The Jewish authorities are marveling at him. They're astonished. And this isn't a good marveling. This isn't like a, oh, wow, he's pretty good. Their astonishment is uh, shock, incredulity, right? They're, they're, they're thinking more like, who, who do you think you are? This guy doesn't even have formal training. He hasn't been to rabbi school, right? And that's what they're saying. When they say this man has no learning, look, Jesus was like every other Jewish child. He went to synagogue school, so he had some education. What they're talking about is formal education, right? He didn't go to rabbi school so that he could learn the proper way of teaching the law as we see it. He has no formal training. So basically their question to Jesus, what they're looking at Jesus and saying is, who do you think you are? You have no right to teach in the temple. And Jesus says, well, actually, because here's, here's what they would do. Here's, here's, if you were a rabbi, here's how you taught. You would make your point, and then you would cite your sources. right? You would follow the rabbinical track backwards, which is a good thing. We still do that in modern education. If you're going to write a paper, okay, you have to cite your sources. We can't just take your word for it. Uh, That's a good thing. What they're accusing Jesus of is speaking on his own authority. They're saying, you have no sources. Who do you think you are? And so Jesus defends his authority. He says, actually, I don't speak on my own. The teaching I have comes from him who sent me. Notice Notice the humility of Jesus. Jesus does not say, dude, I wrote the law. I know what I'm talking about. He says... No, it's not even my teaching. It comes from him who sent me. So even, in, even the Lord of the universe defers to his Father. He defers in humility to his Father. And so it's not my teaching. It's my Father's teaching, that him who sent me. And then he goes on to prove his point. He says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether my teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Basically, he's calling them out. He's saying, if you actually wanted to do God's will, if you actually knew the law, like you say you do, then you would recognize the teaching. You would recognize the authority. But as such, you don't recognize the authority. You see, I haven't come on my own authority. I didn't come seeking my own glory. But he implies, you have. And so you miss 
the point. I am true because I don't seek my own glory, but you are false because you do. And to give an example, he says, hasn't Moses given you the law? And yet not one of you keeps the law. And this is where it gets kind of murky. It's hard for us to understand what exactly Jesus is doing here. But what he's doing is he's, He's basically taking their argument, their judgment of his authority or lack thereof, and he's turning it around on them. So he says, all right, you have the law. How come none of you keeps it? Because you're trying to kill me, right? He says, if you knew the law, if you wanted to do God's will, you wouldn't be trying to kill me, but you are. So you tell me, you think I have no right to be in the temple teaching the law? What about you? You lawbreakers who don't keep the law, who are trying to kill me. And you see how the crowd reacts. They basically call him crazy. They say, you have a demon. Strong words meant to discredit Jesus. They say, you have a demon. Who's trying to kill you? Which, by the way, they acknowledge that somebody is trying to kill him in a few verses. So who knows what they're, what they're thinking there. And so Jesus... So then Jesus gives an example, right? And this is where it gets a a little bit harder to understand, but it's helpful if we can see that. Jesus uses his healing of the man on the Sabbath in chapter 5. He uses that episode as an example of him keeping the law and their breaking the law. And here's how it works, okay? So that he can prove who he says he is, here's how it works. He says, I healed a man on the Sabbath, and you all were... were shocked. You all were indignant at it. Yet, this is why Moses gave you circumcision. So, basically, circumcision was this physical mark. Everybody who was a part of God's covenant family, or every male who was a part of God's covenant family, received the mark of circumcision. And so, here's kind of how Jesus' reasoning in this section works. You have the Sabbath, which was observed every seventh day, And you also have circumcision. And on the Sabbath, you are not allowed to do any ordinary work. But on days where circumcision fell on the Sabbath, it was okay. Right? So it's not really like like circumcision trumped the Sabbath. But rather, if you circumcised on the Sabbath, you were keeping God's law. It's, It's something like... It's something like an ambulance driver who speeds in order to get someone to the hospital. Okay? He's breaking the speed limit, but he's really not breaking it. Because think about, the, think about the heart of the law underneath it. Think of the spirit of the law. The spirit of the speed limit law is the preservation of human life. So that's a good thing, right? And the spirit of the law that allows an ambulance driver to go over the speed limit is also about the preservation of human life. This is good. This is better. And so in the same way, Jesus is saying, look, you keep the law. You don't break the law of Moses when you circumcise on the Sabbath. So why in the world are you angry with me, not for making one part of a man holy, but actually making an entire man healthy? I did a real work of healing on the Sabbath, and you are angry about it because you don't understand the law. You love the spirit of the, I mean, you love the letter of the law, but you don't love the spirit of the law. And because you don't, or better, or better yet, you love the law, 
but you don't love the lawgiver. And because you don't love the lawgiver, you cannot really delight in the law. You cannot keep the law. In fact, you break the law. And so what Jesus is doing is he's basically proving his authority by saying that he understands the law, that he is the one who keeps the law, and they are the one who break it. They are the ones who break it. And then he says this, Judge not by appearances, but with righteous judgment. And this was a charge that Israel's leaders received back in the Old Testament. They were to judge with righteous judgment. The only way to do that was to understand the law. And so what Jesus is accusing them of, and rightly so, is he's saying, you don't understand the law, and so you can't make good judgments. Instead, you're judging by human appearances, which is foolish. Understand the law, and you'll understand me, and you'll believe. And so you're hardened in your heart because you don't understand the law. Now, what does that, what does that mean for us? We can have the same problem. That we can love to keep the minute details of the law and even extrapolate further principles that help us keep the law. But if we don't love the lawgiver, if we don't even know the lawgiver, then we will end up using the law to abuse other people. We'll do silly things like get mad at a 40-year-old man who had been healed from paralysis his entire life. We'll say, you shouldn't be carrying your mat on the Sabbath. He's been paralyzed for 38 years. Aren't you, aren't you astonished at the grace of God in healing a man's whole body? You can't be because you don't love God. You say you love his law, but you miss him. And we can be in danger of doing the same, that we love the letter, but we neglect the spirit. And what happens is when we neglect the spirit, we miss the lawgiver altogether. And so Jesus is here to show us that the lawgiver, that really he's the lawgiver. He's the lawkeeper and he's the lawgiver. And that the only way to understand his words is to know and do his will. And then finally in the last episode there, we'll just do this quickly. Jesus is proved by the triumph of belief in the face of hostility. You see this thing, Jesus, Jesus basically accuses the authorities. He says, listen, stop judging by appearances, judge with righteous judgment, and that's it. They've had enough. They send officers to go arrest him. But somehow in the ensuing confusion, uh, Jesus is not arrested by them. Let's see here. Um, in fact, look at, the, look, at the, look at how the crowd responds to Jesus. Isn't this the man whom they seek to kill? Here he is speaking openly. They say nothing to him. Jesus says, you think you know where I come from, but you don't really know. You don't know me because you don't know him who sent me. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. And it's at that word in verse 30 that they seek to arrest him. And yet no one laid a hand on him because his hour, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, his hour had not yet come. It wasn't time for Jesus to get arrested. And so Jesus doesn't get arrested. Not only does Jesus not get arrested, but many believe. 
So even though, even though the crowds are leaving, even though the authorities hate him, even though the, the crowds are, are really skeptical of who he is, yet in the mix of all of this hostility, those who are appointed unto eternal life believe, fulfilling what Jesus said in just the last chapter, that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. These are not ideal confessions. You know, this, was, this is not how you want your evangelistic event to go, right? Modern evangelical event, we want like... It's this really moving message, and we just want throngs of people coming down the aisle. <clears throat> What's happening to Jesus is that the throngs that are coming down the aisle have swords in their hands. They want to arrest him. They want to take him in. But he says, not right now. My time, my hour has not come. And so they're not able to. And not only do they not get to arrest him, but many believe. And so what is it that leads him to belief? His word. As he teaches and as he reveals himself, as he reveals his heaven-sent identity, people believe. Do you notice earlier that Jesus said in verse 8, I am not going up to this feast. John is a master wordsmith and there's always things lying underneath the surface. Why do you think John says that Jesus says, I'm not going up to this feast because in six months there will be a feast and he will go up to that one he will observe that one in fact he'll be the sacrifice at that one he will in fact go up he will be raised up on a cross and when he does he will do so of his own accord later on Jesus will say no one takes my life from me I give it up and so Jesus will go up to a feast, and when he does, he will offer himself as the sacrifice. He will show himself to the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're glad that you don't follow our agendas, that you don't meet our expectations, rather you exceed them. You defy our, our worldly, humanly limited expectations so that you can save us, so that you can be our Redeemer. Lord, would you help us to apply your contrary word, a word that runs counter to what we think, a word that runs counter to how we live, and yet a word that brings life and healing and hope. Help us to believe that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And in believing, have life in your name. We ask it in your name. Amen.